And welcome again to APG's Hidden History. My name is Sean Keefe, and I'm here with my co-host, Susan Thompson. Say hi, Susan. Hi, Susan. And Susan, today, I think we're just going to jump right into it. All right. Because we left too many people hanging. That's you right. You know, they've That's had right. to wait two weeks to hear the rest of the story. To hear about those peaches and those punches. That's right. And we got some punches coming your way. All right. Because we're going to start this episode off with... The prize fight that never happened. <laughs> All right, let's hear it, Sean. Or did it happen, Susan? I don't know. Let's we talk about it. We just don't know. I tell you, and I got to say, you know, I'm a boxing fan. And I pretty much consider myself an expert because I've seen like every Rocky movie out there. <laughs> Is that what it takes? That's all it takes. Bum, 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 there you go. Keep me going. I'll, right. I'll dance around this room <laughs> if you need me to. You know, I played that in my fifth grade orchestra. <laughs> The you played the Rocky? Rocky. Yes. Oh, the Rocky I'm, theme? I'm sure it was amazing. <laughs> Just what year are we talking about here, Susan? This would have been 1979, Ooh, Wow. Probably. Look at you go. I'm oh. very proud of you. Oh, no. It would have been later. 1983, because it would have been fifth grade. So 1983. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think when Rocky came out. I don't it came know. out in the late 70s, but... Yeah. But, you know, it would have made its way to elementary school music scoring <laughs> <laughs> by the early 80s. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Great story. See, more buildup, more right. buildup. But again, back to uh, the story here, prize fighting. We're going, we're in the year 1849, Susan. All right. So prize fighting in the U.S. is illegal. Right. And, and there really wasn't much sporting going on in America at that time. You just didn't have the sport itself, but you had everything that went along with it, which was the gambling mm. and the money making. Well, right. I mean, I think and people will find a lot of what we talk about for the prize fighting. It's all about the money. It is. It always comes down it to the money. It always comes down to money. It and, it, and it shows up in a lot of ways. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about that. So. And anger. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> a little bit of anger in there makes a good fight. But again, in 1849, prize fighting is illegal in the U.S., because people looked at it as potential murder, which is the reason why it really was illegal. Okay. Because, you know, some men didn't get out of the ring. I mean, this was right. bare knuckle fighting. Because there weren't really rules. Like, it was a thing that wealthy gentlemen did in England. There mm -hmm. were fighting clubs, gentlemen, Jacksons, and things like that. But they really hadn't created rules around it they until didn't. like 1838, right? And even Thomas Jefferson, going way back, he compared bare knuckle fighting to dueling. Okay. You know, he didn't see anything different between the two because somebody may wind up dead. So, so a harsh sport. We're, it, we're it is. It is. So this leads us to New York City, where James Yankee Sullivan challenged Tom Heyer to a championship bout. And this is important because this would be considered the first time there was a championship in prize fighting in the United States. All right. And you also have a natural born American in Tom Heyer compared to that of an Irish born James Sullivan. Right. And James Sullivan just wasn't an Irish immigrant, even though he set up sort of the fight between the nativists and the immigrants mm -hmm. at the time. He was also an escapee from the penal colony in Ouch. Australia. <laughs> that I did so, not know. Yeah. So um, like he made his way to New York in 1839 after escaping from the penal colony. And he set up business as all good felons do as a saloon keeper. I think the thing to remember at the time for a little historical context is that these fighters were really more than just 
fire. I mean, this wasn't like their main job. For the most part, they were bar keepers, saloon mm-hmm. keepers. They were butchers. They were the working class people of New York. But they were also being used as the henchmen of the political parties at the Correct. time. So it was really... It looked like sports. It probably was somewhat about sports, but it was also about those fighting political parties, about gaining influence at the time. Mm -hmm. And some people today, looking back, compare the two to the film The Gangs of New York. Right. Where you have the Bill the Butcher character. Right. Which, you know, and they his name is Butcher because he probably was a butcher. He was a butcher, correct. As Tom Heyer was a butcher by training as well. Yes. So these are people who are, you know, rough and tumble and they're separated from the more elites of New York at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this all began when, you know, you have two fighters here and then one thinking they're the better fighter. Right. So and they had had a long history, right? They like, did. It's not like all of a sudden they met each other and it's like, oh, we're going to have a prize fight. They not knew at each all. other at least 10 years and had scuffles back and forth. They did. And, yeah, and everything so. came to a head when James Sullivan came into the barroom and challenged Tom Heyer to a championship fight. And Heyer was ready to go right then and there. And he put <laughs> him in a headlock and he pummeled him. And the cops came and basically they had to separate the two. And that pretty much triggered... What would become again the first prize fight right. in and, America? And there was a little posturing too, right? In the newspapers, correct? They were like writing bad copy about each oh, yeah. other and saying, "Oh, this guy is a thug, and he attacked mm-hmm. me." And then they turn about and say, "No, oh, this guy attacked me, and we're gonna duke it out, and we're settle this." And what's exactly? And, for all. and what's again so amazing is that here is. <laughs> An illegal bout, a legal fight about to go down, and it's still being very highly publicized. Right. So then the fighters have to think, how do we pull this off? And just before I go any further, each side had to put up $5,000. Susan, that's $5,000 each in 1849. I mean, that's a lot of money. To, so the purse would be $10,000 to whoever won. Correct. And do you know how much money that is today? No, tell me, Sean. Well, let me let me let me school you today. Susan. Okay. That would be over three hundred and seventy thousand dollars today. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for a bare knuckle fight. Yeah. With no Don King involved in it. You know <laughs> what I mean? These are just men and right. And there you, and there's no there's no like television making money off of this. This not is at just all. like each side had their supporters, their political supporters, their people. You know, they they belong to these various clubs who would support Correct. them, and so they had to raise the money to put up for this ten thousand dollar purse. And they did, but then they have to decide. Well, we can't have it in New York because, because we're already <laughs> exposed ourselves. So where do we have it? That's so, a good question. Where did they have it? They, everything, <laughs> they pretty much went underground. Okay. And to kind of speed the story up here, they wound up training in Baltimore. Okay. And then it hits the Baltimore newspapers. Mm. Because in 1849, there were published articles where you could come and see the likeness of each fighter. Okay. They had on display because, of, of course, you know, there was no television or anything <laughs> like that. But you could come and you could you could see what these fighters look like. Because and, I assume like one of the draws is that you're probably going to bet 
on Absolutely. the flight. So it's going to be personal money. So you want to, it's like looking at the horses before exactly. the race. You want to figure out which one you're, you're checking going to checking teeth, you're doing everything. <laughs> okay. So you have Tom Heyer, who stood five foot eleven at 200 pounds. And then you have Yankee Sullivan, who stood at 5'8 at 160 pounds. So these aren't huge guys. No, they're not. But, okay. but, you know, I wouldn't get in the ring with either one of them. I can tell you that right now. And I stand at six foot four. Right. So now you need to decide where are we going to have this fight? There's multiple, multiple stories on how all of this went down. Some factual, some made up. Some is just, just pure legend and lore. Speculation. Speculation. I mean, because you have to figure they weren't really fact-checking the newspaper articles at the time. It was like whoever, you know, it was a lot of hype. It was a lot of stories. And it was, you know, trying to put yourself in the best light as as the tough, as it were, who could, like, get the job done. And they're trying to elude the authorities the whole time. So there's rumors that there were doubles, you know, okay. because nobody knew what these men looked like either, you okay. know, especially if you're, you know, outside of their native city of New York. Right. Um, so they're in Baltimore. They're, you know, they're training. They have sparring partners. You know, they even, there was one article that I read that they put out, quote, doubles okay. of these men where the authorities could follow as the other, as, as the, the real, real ones. People. Yeah, the real people could go ahead and, and train. So then it's decided by the promoters that they're going to have it on a little island in the middle of the Chesapeake. Because to their knowledge, they didn't even know if anybody had claim to the land. Even though, of course, we all know that it's still owned by our favorite Peregrine Weathered in this time period. That it is. It's a farm. It's still being used. It's probably not highly occupied, but there's agricultural buildings and there's things like that peppering the island. And then you had the Maryland governor that declared that no disgusting exhibition would ever be done on Maryland soil. Hmm. So he had... Them spreading words. (laughs) (laughs) So he had the troops ready. He brought in the military. He brought in the police. And this is when things get wild. All right, let's hear it. Really wild. It's like a whole Keystone cop caper here. Okay. The police hear that the fight's going to happen at Carroll Island. Okay, which is another island... Owned by Aberdeen Proving Ground. It is? It is, yes. So All right, we're, t- we're not going to talk about it. Note to self. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's it's further down. It's closer to Bali's Quarters and that area, Essex, okay. outside. So it's it's b- more down in Baltimore County. Okay. So just FYI. But it's these little islands that pepper the coastline of Maryland. So You like that pepper word, don't Pepper. You? Well, maybe I should pick a different no, word. No, that's why I'm just teasing you. <laughs> So loaded with 110 officers and towing a scow for the transporting of prisoners from the Baltimore Harbor, the police head out to Carroll Island. Okay. Only to find it empty. There's no one there, Susan. (laughs) It's just silent. So then they start to move up north. Okay. To Pools Island. Now they got them. Okay. The police are like, they're there. We know they're there. They've been there. Then they run ashore, grounded. So then they start jumping in the water, swimming the pools island. And this is February. This is happening. This is yeah, it's cold. <laughs> it's it's not like we're talking June, July. It's August cold. Time it's frame, cold. So so they arrive at pools, but guess what, Susan? What this and this is pretty pretty darn important. No one told them what they looked like. <laughs> they had no idea who they were looking for. All right. So you had Sullivan there. You had Hire there, and they also had their trainers with them. Okay. So in order to allow them to escape. They just, here I am, guys, come and get me. 
So it's just a scene of like abandoned at Pool's Island. They don't know what they're doing. They or don't they're know what they're doing or anything. And the ones that they're after are just walking among the crowd <laughs> and right off into a boat. Probably like, hey, there's the guy there you, you want. Go. And actually, the news article says that the spectators were kind of like flipping the bird and <laughs> waving at the cops because they were stranded because their their boat had run ashore. They okay. weren't going anywhere. Okay. So Sullivan and Hire, they finally wound up in Kent County at Still Pond Heights. And there the fight happened, finally, after all that. So so what was the fight like after all this buildup to the fight? One man was left standing and one <laughs> man was left lying on the ground. All right. But who was victorious, Susan? I don't know. You don't know? Well, I do. Okay. <laughs> I've done my research, okay. too. I'm like, oh, man, I know something you don't know? The American maid, Tom Heyer. Oh, right. So after this, he became the champion of America. Correct. Right? I mean, this catapulted him to fame. It did. Uh, uh, from what I've read, he was the first sort of sports figure to appear on the American stage. He was basically stuck into a bad play to mm -hmm. draw people to make money. And it was after this fight happened that the newspapers really started including sports news just to sell papers. So it's, it's all about it's all about the money. So this was really a turning point in American history and American sports history. It was really the beginning mm -hmm. of American sports and setting up these, you know, prize fighters as someone to be admired. Like normally the American public would not look fondly on a brutish butcher slash saloon keeper. I mean, that's sure. not who you would. But like they set him up. Tom Heyer, champion of America, to be this mythical figure in the sky. And they were selling mementos and, you know, as I said, putting him on the stage. And That's true. And there's even a lithograph that was created right. of the fight, which is pretty amazing. And I would love to get a hold of a copy myself. Well, I, I, I've seen what you're talking about, too. And, you know, the fact that it was being publicized in art, they were putting out pamphlets about it like one of his friends published this whole like life and times of tom hire really became its own kind of industry which had never existed before yeah and with pamphlets and articles like that that were written at the time just like with the wild west heroes everything is kind of projected bigger than what it actually mm. was so that's you know when it comes to us in 2023 trying to research these people it's, it's kind of hard. It's very difficult to distinguish fact from fiction. There's a lot of myth involved. Correct. Yeah, and you have to sort, and, you know, this is our total research process. I mean, we have to sort through what's real, what somebody said happened, which mm -hmm. there's no basis to actually determine that, and, like, what is likely to happen. And, and, and this um, higher Sullivan fight is, is really interesting because... It was so well documented in the newspapers at the time. There's just a ton of scholarly literature about it, which, you know, you wouldn't think a prize fight, but, no, you know, but like people write about this for their dissertations uh, and I things like that. So articles from every decade yeah. after the fight written about the fight because Tom Heyer, he even had to return to Baltimore and he did habeas corpus. <laughs> remember that? Right. I okay. That. Which means he had to show up in person. He had to show up. Because he committed a crime. Right. You know? So he was being admired, but he was being prosecuted at the same time. And and it's really interesting 
looking back now because he won $10,000, which would have been yeah. a lot of money. That's but, a lot of money. But you go back and you look and he died destitute and physically broken at the age of 45. Yeah. And Sullivan didn't fare too well either. Yeah. You know, he died pretty young himself. But one thing that came out in the trial is that there was speculation that they never intended to have the actual fight on pools. Hmm. That they, you know, tried to give diversions many times, like, oh, that was going to be a Carol. And they realized they were, you know, when the police showed up and, and no one was at Carol, then they headed to Kent County, which is what they say was intended all along. <laughs> Who knows? We Who don't knows? know because don't know. The, the water is pretty much so muddy now. It's, it's hard to really determine. Right. But still, our little island was the site of a <laughs> big cat and mouse game. Right. That pretty much... All due to Pools Island. Oh, yeah. And, and New York City. But... And New York City. <laughs> The holiday season is quickly approaching. Tickets to the C5 ISR holiday party on December 8th at Top of the Bay are available now. This event is not exclusive to just the C5 ISR community, but to all who work or live on Aberdeen Proving Ground. Find out more information by visiting the APG Facebook or Instagram pages for links to purchase tickets. There are only a limited number, so get yours today before they sell out. Don't miss out on the biggest Bavarian experience of the year. Only at the C5 ISR Holiday Party. So Pools Island in this time frame, you know, starting with this prize fight is really kind of, even though it's still owned by Peregrine Weathered, I don't know, in some ways like no man's land, area of mystery, area of tragedy. And to talk a little bit about the tragedy, we have, as we referred to in our last episode, the mysterious graves that are located on Pools Island. You want to tell us a little bit about it, Sean? I don't know anything about it, Susan. You don't? No, not at all. I thought you told me you had seen the graves. No, (laughs) just teasing. You are correct, Susan, because when I was there in 2019, And as I mentioned before, about 200 feet from the lighthouse are the grave markers to Captain Elijah and James Williams. So what do we know about the Williams? Nothing. (laughs) There is nothing. I cannot find anything other than what's written on their tombstone. Right. I mean, and that's my point, really, is that you and I have both done our independent research. And the only documentation about this tragedy, we will call it, is, is the tombstone itself. So the story is that we've seen in February of 1855, Captain Elijah and James Williams, they were both in their early 20s, got lost in a snowstorm off the coast of Pools Island and vanished. And then about four months later, the body of Captain Elijah Williams washes on shore of Pools Island and is discovered by the lighthouse keeper. And you're talking four months We're later. We're talking four months four later. Four months later. And I mean, did he have his cat card in his back pocket? <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, how would they even, how do you think they even would be and able I, to identify I don't, them? I don't know if, I mean, this is why I was searching the newspapers. I know oh, you were too, because it there's, was frustrating. there's certainly stories about other drownings and other issues mm-hmm. that happen in the area. And there's nothing about the discovery of a body. All we have is the information that's on the tombstone itself. The tombstone reads, In memory of Captain Elijah Williams, aged 24 years old, 
who was lost in a snowstorm February 24, 1855, near Pools Island. His body was found June 14, 1855, and interred in this place. Also to the memory of his brother, Captain James Williams, aged 26 years lost with him at the same time, his body has not been found. No friendly hand did close their eyes. They saw no tear, they heard no sighs, but in the waves they lost their breath and they endured a watery death. Pools Island is kind of in a dangerous area. You have to remember that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, was much different. There's newspaper reports of five inches of ice covering the Mm -hmm. waters around Pools Island. There were boat accidents. There were people caught in the ice, caught in the snowstorm. There was reports in 1876 of a canal boat wreck where eight people died. Um, There's numerous other reports of bodies washing on the shore of Pools Island. Actually, it seems to be a location where things just wash up because... um, There's even newspaper articles about, like, this boat washed up on the shore. You can come retrieve it if you prove it's yours and Mm -hmm. give us a fee, you know. And this is. And they were always picking, like, loose boats out of the. So there must be some sort of current that drives things towards Pools Island. But, uh, you know, at the time, the only people really there would have been the lighthouse keepers. So it was kind of a desolate place. You know, the lighthouse keepers and their children had the run of the island. The only way to get to land was by boat. There was never a bridge. There was never any physical connection. I I think when the water would freeze, you could walk across the water, and that's how Mm -hmm. people... Do you um, think their bodies were preserved in the cold water? Could that have been a possibility? I don't know. So, I mean, it's really, it is a mystery. Um, Well, you know, it it almost makes me wonder that if they never found James, but knew of James, how did the lighthouse keeper know that? I don't know. Or how would somebody have known that? Uh, Unless there was a search party. They must have been reported as missing because they they have a date of when Mm -hmm. they went missing. And I'm sure there were documents of like there was a storm that happened and they would have known maybe maybe they were just fishermen who were out on a small skiff or something like that. Maybe... Part of their boat washed up, which is how they identified someone. Maybe there was part of a body in a boat. We don't know. Mm-hmm. All we know is the information that's on this this very vague tombstone, which was hidden for a very long time. Yes, it was. It, it was, was rediscovered. Right. Later. So in the 1950s, in 1950, I guess four employees of the chemical center at the time were fox hunting on Pools Island, and they stumbled across this tombstone hidden in the brush and like so that's basically when it re-enters current i would say knowledge and then from our understanding the gravestone used to be much closer to the shore but it had eroded over time and it was in danger of actually being washed away so in about the 1970s the headstone was moved further back so Mm -hmm. the original location isn't where it is now and when they did move the headstone, they didn't actually find any evidence of a body. So, no, and I imagine there wouldn't be. I'm, I'm sure it's pretty much under the water yeah. at this point. Yeah. But what's also a little interesting, as a footnote, there's a footstone. Okay. <laughs> when I was there, if you're standing with your back facing the water looking into the island, right. you can read the tombstone. Okay. And behind about maybe eight feet, the headstone is the footstone. 
Which just has their initials. Which just has their initials. But it makes you think because it was kind of perplexing to me that, you know, the footstone marks where the feet are and the headstone marks where the head is, but yet the inscription is reading towards the water. It's turned the wrong way from the way a normal... Correct. A normal headstone in a graveyard would be. That's right. And if anyone has any secret information that we didn't manage to find, please let us know. We'd love to hear the story behind the Williams brothers who mysteriously vanished. That's right. Only to turn up on Pools Island. Just to turn up on Pools Island. And again, do not come looking for (laughs) peace and love. Do not come looking for these stones, you could see them. We'll do you a favor and we'll post them to our Facebook site to see the actual stones and how they look today and even back in the 70s. I don't know if there were any photos of when it was rediscovered. Do you? No, I don't believe so because they probably didn't have cameras when they were hunting foxes. So. No? It's not like now where everyone, everyone has their, their camera in their pocket. So. Yes. So as we move through the 1800s, um, We're sort of moving into a different time period. So we're moving away from a more rural agricultural landscape to one where people in cities are looking for recreation. You know, it sort of started with the boxing. People have a little bit more free time, a little bit of money, not much, but a little bit. And at beginning in like the 1850s, there's this idea of excursioning because there's steamboats. And as we talked about earlier, the Chesapeake Bay was the main way to get around because, as we said, it would take, you know, an hour and a half now driving around to get on the opposite side. But you could take a steamship across from Kent County to Baltimore in probably like an hour or so and you get a lovely day on the bay. So there's lots of articles in the newspaper at the time talking about family excursions on these boats where you were welcome to bring a lunch and they'd leave from Baltimore or they'd leave from Kent County, specifically from what was called Tolchester Beach Amusement Park. Tolchester was huge back in the day. And so was Betterton. It was a way to escape city life. Right. You could go to a beach and they had moving picture shows. I mean, I have an old photo of the beach there at Tolchester. And right. It's, it's pretty, and, they and that's have, from the 20s. Right. And they have, but there's lots of um, pictures of the steamboats that you could take. But, you know, this was widely advertised in the city. And for about 25 cents, you'd get a day out on the bay. And they said, bring your lunch. But they would have ice cream and confectionaries mm-hmm. on for sale on the boat. They it was would, a pleasure cruise. Right. They wouldn't stop at Pools Island, but mm-hmm. they would go up and around Pools Island. So that was sort of the terminus of the boating excursion. Yes, I found plenty, plenty of uh, advertisements. Then later in the 19 teens, there start to be, or, you know, more reasons to stop at Pools Island. And the reason to stop at Pools Island was the peaches. Oh, I love me some peaches. <laughs> so in 1872, we finally get to the end of the Peregrine Weathered time frame at Pools Island. He, he is deceased at this point and his son owns the property. And it is purchased by a man named George Merritt. And George Merritt brought in to the island 2,700 peach trees in order to start an orchard. And evidently, This was phenomenal. This was like an amazing peach orchard. Mm -hmm. 
it was renowned in Baltimore all over. So originally, as I said, it was 2,700 peach trees and it went up to 7,000. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think we referred to it earlier. About 10 years later, a farmer from Iowa had taken a little fishing trip to the island mm-hmm. and was amazed at the fertility of this island. He's the one who called it a piece of Iowa soil in Maryland. And he went in with a Baltimore businessman and purchased the island. Oh, he did? Yeah. Okay. So his name was John Masheter. And he's really the one who started marketing the peaches. And he even developed a variety called Pools Island Best. That I've heard of, yes. Which didn't grow really anywhere else. And it was wonderfully flavorful and a large yellow. But like, so the peach season lasted from June through October. So it was a very long season where they were harvesting bushels and bushels of peaches from this island. And as you said before, they weren't really using fertilizer. These were highlighted as being like amazingly large peach trees. You couldn't get these anywhere else. So in about the 19-teens, the excursions would stop at the island and everyone would get like a basket of peaches to take with them. So oh, it, was, wow. it was part of the excursion. And what year was this? This was about 1913, 1915. Okay. Yeah, that's right around the time, um, like I said, with uh, Tolchester and Betterton, they, that was 1915 to, through the 20s. That was a real, I mean, these were some big ships that were, you know, right. these weren't like little schooners or anything like that. They right. were taking uh, many people out of Baltimore. So the peaches were growing, everything was happy. There were, this was still an area of interest to people because in 1910, I found an article about rumors that they were planning a bridge linking the western shore and the eastern shore and but using pools island as one oh, of the places okay. so that there would be a, a span from hart miller's island to pools island and then the largest span would be from pools island to kent county with the idea of running steam engines and things across it of course that never happened mm-hmm. it's a Ven- big endeavor it's a big endeavor eventually you know we have the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, but that ended up being built much farther south around Annapolis instead of up, even though it's a it's a narrower mm. uh, span up here. And then we get to 1917 and all those plans. What happened are, in 1917, Susan? The, Please tell me. All the previous plans were thwarted because the army comes calling, looking for a new proving ground because they had been up at Sandy Hook in New Jersey, and it was too small and too close to New York. So they were looking for a new place to test weapons, and they came across Harford County. Their other choice was Kent County, and they were sort of put off by the by the people of Kent County. And so they settled on Harford County, and they bought what is now APG, including Pools Island. So mm-hmm. Pools Island was purchased as part of the overall APG purchase in 1917. And the peaches were still there because in 1918, after Army... Was it still like a large orchard? It was an orchard, but... Or was I, it just remnants of what well, was once? So the as of 1918, there was actually an advertisement put out by the Army. They were looking for contractors who would buy, who would come and like purchase the crop and harvest ah. it because the peach, like they weren't actively managing it, sure. but, but it was there. So I never found anything after 1918 because at that point they were beginning to use it as part of the the target range. So it became, that's when the the unexploded ordnance started appearing on okay. the island and, and the light was automated so that they were really trying to keep people away from the island beginning in 1917. So would you say that like 1917 
that time frame is when the public was not allowed on onto the island, you or were would, they still allowed? You would think so, but so it was army owned, but I mean, it was still. I don't. It's this weird little island because I found an article from 1922. So the army had been there for five years already, and it was about this these shenanigans <laughs> happening on Pools Island with the. Freshman and sophomore classes from Johns Hopkins University. What year is this? This is 1922. Okay. So there's a report that there were seven sophomores imprisoned on Pools Island. Hold it now. <laughs> so this had begun with, I is guess. Is this true? This is a true story. Okay. Because some of the sophomore class had captured the president of the freshman class and had him like tucked away in, oh my in some state park somewhere. Well, he was discovered by the freshmen and released. And instead, they captured the seven sophomores who were holding him prisoner and somehow conveyed them to Pools Island and kept them prisoner because to keep them away from the sophomore class banquet that was going on that night. Mm-hmm. And evidently, they also captured the man who had the money <laughs> for oh. the banquet. So it took a while to um, get the money to pay for the dinner. And there were reports of some arrests happening with the freshmen who had imprisoned the sophomores. So just like in 1922, don't come to Pools Island or you might be arrested. (laughs) Peace and love. Peace and love. Wow. That was a story that I've never heard. That's incredible. So today, of course, Pools Island is mostly left alone, um, except as in your case, the little excursions that the that the APG Garrison mm-hmm. goes out there to maintain. And this um, is by police boat too. I want to just <laughs> let our audience know it wasn't like we just jumped on a boat and headed out there. This and, was an escorted. And sometimes trip. people do wash up accidentally on the shore of yeah. Pools Island, and they do have to rescue them. But it's it's not a place to go voluntarily. Yeah, this island. I mean, it's monitored people. Right. I I mean, don't I mean, there's there are police boats going back and forth. So don't think that there is, you know, don't make any attempt to try and land on this island. So if if you get to Pools Island today, which you shouldn't, the only thing you'll really see are the current inhabitants, which are mostly blue heron and osprey um, who have large nests there. And I've heard, you know. The blue herring can get kind of nasty with you if you if you visit. This is from the actual people who are allowed to go there who work for the garrison. And maybe some remnants, um, some some descendants of those original deer that John Beale Bordley talked about, the deer and the wild turkeys and things that occupied the island. So it's really kind of a wildlife sanctuary at this point. How about chipmunks? Are there <laughs> any chipmunks on the island? Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, are they like hanging out at the lighthouse? Getting on top, getting a little suntan, ha- you know what I mean? They're having prize fights, Sean. They're having prize fights, all right. Now we got ourselves a story. Peaches and punches. Peaches and punches at pools. Well, there you go. That's about all we got. We're spent. But I'd like to thank everybody again for tuning in for APG's Hidden History. This has been Peaches and Punches at Pools, Part 2. It's a lot of peas. It is. It is. And we will see you next time. Thank you.